Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. This week really was driven by bonds. The yield curve, the gap between two-year and 10-year Treasury yields inverting for the first time, briefly, albeit, uh, since 2007, adding to this gloom and doom that was pervasive throughout all markets. But the question is, where do we go from here? And are bonds really sending that bearish of a signal? John Authors is joining us now, senior editor for Bloomberg Markets, a fabulous columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. I recommend you read his work. Uh, It is tremendous. John, thank you so much for being here. What's your take on the message being sent from bond markets this week? Well, the message is plainly negative. It'd be ridiculous to try to argue any any way other than that. Less perhaps the inversion. We've been inverted on the three months, 10 years for quite a while anyway, and we were only inverted on the two years to 10 year for a matter of minutes. Uh, so that's actually, I think, less important than the Highly sheer... Highly publicised minutes, though. Yeah, well, yes, exactly. I, I, I got, uh, I gave an interview for, I gave an interview for Bloomberg Radio in my PJs um, the moment it happened, more or less. That's how we do it. Dragged that's out how of we bed. Do it. Yes. So uh, okay. we, 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 we were there, and we were not the only ones there on the on that story. But, but um, what has been more important, plainly, is the remarkable fall in yields, the remarkable move to buy bonds, therefore, and that has not really been reversed in any meaningful way during the week. Uh, Plainly, that can only be negative. The interesting question and the reasonable question is whether the bond market tends to be wrong less of the time than the stock market tends to be, but it's not as though the bond market is infallible. The question is whether the bond market could be wrong about this, whether we've got into um, the inverse, an anti bubble where negativity takes over in the same way that uh, optimism takes over in the top of a stock market bubble. Yeah, I mean, and, we're, and I'd like to dig into mm. that. But before we do that, I mean, I, mm. I guess I hate to be the person to say this time is different because I think that I'd rather uh, shoot myself than, than, yes. than, than commit to that kind of mm. statement uh, and say that everybody else is wrong. But, you know, people are talking about this change in demographics. They're talking about the change in inflation mm. regime, the fact that the population isn't growing as quickly in developed markets, the fact that, you know, all of these types of factors leading to lower inflation, yes. slower growth and just lower natural yields, not to mention just the amount of debt outstanding. Yes. So, you know, isn't that enough to send yields lower despite the fact that we may not be headed toward recession, right? Uh, all of those things certainly help send the yields lower. I would I would add the sheer technical factor of liability matching, which is much more of a an issue than it was even 10 or 11 years ago when we, 12 years ago now when we had the last inversion. That said, that said, okay, from the war through to at least the turn of the millennium was a historically great time to be holding both stocks and bonds and you could argue that 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 we're now into a you know argue into different period given the the level of the demographics it's only 12 months since all the logic all the narrative all the great bond gurus said that uh, the direction for bonds was naturally up right um, that the uh, secular uh, bull market in bonds was over, that uh, pension funds, as, as we saw the demographics shift to people actually retiring, selling their bonds as part of the process of drawing their pensions and so on, that those demographic forces might tell you something about 
the, the economics, but in terms of the technical impact on uh, the bond market, they would still actually drive yields up. Right. That argument is true as far as it goes, just as the one, just as the bullish argument for bonds you just gave me is is true. Um, people seem to have put too much credence in one of them 12 months ago, and I suspect may still be putting too much credence in the other at the moment. So that's, that's where I wanted to head with this. So basically, mm. are the positions, are the long bond positions crowded and overcrowded yes. and set for reversal? Yes, I think so. I mean, there, there was a, I, I did a column earlier this week where you, if you take a look at Kindleberger's famous definitions, the, the, the guy who wrote this wonderful Manias, Panics and Crashes book on uh, uh, investment manias, mostly stock market manias, because stocks are where things really go haywire most of the time, but it c- could apply to, to bonds. What he was talking about there was, is valuation obviously uh, extreme, which it is. Is there a narrative to back it that makes people think that it will carry on like this, that they can justify it? Yes, there is. Is there cheap money available to fund it? Well, duh. And uh, perhaps the only questionable one is, is investment in this market being funded by leverage, which arguably there's, I'm not sure how much leveraged money is pouring into the bond market. Um, But plainly, there's a good argument that what we have here is a bubble-like condition that people, in many cases, really, if you're buying a bond with a negative yield, presumably... Uh, you're at least thinking in terms of selling it to somebody else for an even more negative yield rather than happily losing some capital by holding it until maturity. That's, again, bubble behaviour. So it does look to me as though the market's overcrowded. And similarly, if you take a look at the performance that you've also seen or the patterns that you see in the stock markets that have been caused by people trying to deal with the bond market, you can see plenty of signs of overcrowding there. That yeah, you're talking about the bond proxies, right? Yes. So talk a little bit about what we're talking about. That's utilities and REITs, real estate investment trusts, etc. Those are the most obvious bond proxies, companies that are boring, are unlikely to give you amazing capital growth, but will actually pay you quite a well-supported, predictable uh, yield in the case of you know, utilities from regulated tariffs and um, uh, REITs from the, uh, from the rental yield. Uh, but it actually goes beyond there. Obviously, those companies have been doing well of late in the stock market. But uh, I had a look at some research from SockGen, which was fascinating. They looked at this in a sector-neutral fashion. So for each sector, even if it's biotech, which were the ones that were most correlated to bonds and which were the ones least correlated to bonds over time? And in the last year or so, last couple of years, even on a sector-neutral basis, um, the bonds proxies have suddenly become vastly more overvalued, just using P-E ratios, standard valuation measures, while the ones that are least like bonds have become startlingly undervalued. People are, so if you're more like a bond, people will buy your stock more than your closest competitor. That really does reek of, um, obviously, we've people brainlessly blame algos and so on, which can often be rather a tired way of doing these things. But plainly, lots of people are looking for yield. They're looking for bond substitutes. If they're in some kind of a market neutral strategy or whatever, that means they're buying the most bond-like tech stock and shorting the least bond-like tech stock. And that means we've got some weirdly overcrowded positions that are only there in the stock market that are only there because of the weird conditions in the bond market. John Others, 
Thank you so much for taking the time. I love speaking Thanks, with Lisa. you. It's great insight. And uh, it's sort of a, an interesting time to be not necessarily bullish, but at the same time, it does seem like the bearishness is getting crowded. So, uh, you know, that's uh, going to be something that we're going to be keeping an eye on. John Author is a senior editor for Bloomberg Markets and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. You can read his columns, O-P-I-N, go on the Bloomberg, bloomberg.com slash opinion on the web. It is about 10.30 on Wall Street. That means it is time to get some opinions from Bloomberg Opinion. We are so lucky to have Brooke Sutherland here with us, uh, a columnist for us covering the deals in industrial sectors. And Brooke, it really is about GE today. I know Deere is in the headlines and we're going to get there, but GE is really fascinating because yesterday it was accused of being a Ponzi scheme uh, by someone who called out the Bernie Madoff uh Ponzi scheme, or he called it. Basically, someone said that the accounting issues there were, uh, were were highly problematic. Today, we're seeing a bit of a bounce back in the shares. Why? I think uh, part of it is because Larry Culp said yesterday that he bought two million worth of shares. Um, so that is a vote of confidence by the CEO, sort of putting your money where your your mouth is. Um, he is required by the proxy to own 10 times his salary uh, in stock over the course of five years. He's supposed to build that up. Um, So clearly, GE is trying to incentivize the CEO to do the right thing for shareholders. Um, But, you know, you also had some analysts come out and say, you know, that not all of the report necessarily makes sense to them and that it may be going over the top, but you also have Citigroup saying, you know, look, this builds on existing ongoing concerns. And that's sort of where I fall on the spectrum is, particularly with the insurance business, it is impossible to know how much money they're going to have to put into this. So back up, give us a sense of what the report said, who did it, et cetera. Sure. Um, So it was Harry uh, Markopoulos, who is a whistleblower on Bernie Madoff, um, was ignored by the SEC for years and then ultimately proven correct in his analysis there. Uh, So he published this report on GE accusing them of sort of a couple main things. So the biggest is that he thinks that they are significantly under-reserved in their long-term care insurance business. Now, remember, this is where they had to disclose a $15 billion shortfall last year. Uh, he thinks that they ultimately need $38 billion more there. And part of that is a $18.5 billion immediate cash influx and then a $10.5 billion uh, non-cash gap charge in order to sort of respond to tougher accounting rules that are going to be coming out regulating this business. Um, That is a very big number to put on it. And again, it's, this is such a black box of a business and it's entirely dependent on assumptions. So it matters what you think interest rates are going to do. What are healthcare costs going to do? How many people are going to get Alzheimer's? Are they going to get healthy? When are they going to die? There's so many different variables here that you can make assumptions and come up with sort of whatever number that you want. But I do agree that GE is not being conservative enough when it comes to the long-term care insurance business. Um, You know, I wrote about this in February when they sort of laid out more details in their 10K of the various assumptions that they were making. And when you look at companies like Prudential, it does seem that GE is slightly on the more optimistic side. Um, So, how much they're going to have to put in there is still a question mark, right. but this is certainly something that investors have been 
watching and are aware of. All right, so we'll keep watching GE, and I know you will as well. I do want to shift gears to DRD reported earnings today, and uh, they cut their full-year forecast, which sounded bad. And when I came in, uh, shares were down ahead of the open. Currently, they are up 3.6%. What happened? I think it might be an issue of expectations uh, versus reality. I think expectations were very low for Deere, and you did have a Goldman report out this morning saying, you know, they were not that bad, particularly when you look at the profit margin. Ringing endorsement. I know, <laughs> but I think, I, but it, it is sort of, you know, demonstrative of what investors are going to be focusing on for industrial companies over the coming years. Is as you know, we've now established that we're in a slowdown. There's nothing that I'm seeing that's going to arrest this slowdown, particularly when you have the ongoing trade war uncertainty. So assuming this continues, where do you put your money? And so I think the focus is now on what companies can sustain their profit margins when their sales are falling. Um, and you have Deere also talking about changes to its cost structure. So clearly it's concerned about that. It's yeah. trying to protect its profitability. But but this is this is this was what was struck me this morning. When you start talking about cost cutting, which is essentially that cost cutting and raising prices for the customers that you do have, you can only do that so much, right? And I mean does that sort of uh, indicate something bigger that is concerning to you? It does. I mean, I will say, so you're, you're absolutely right. There's only so much you can cut, but the idea is that these companies are becoming more efficient, more productive. You now a big part of that is a lot more of their operations are automated. So they don't have as many people to pay in the first place. Um, so that's their argument is that, you know, they're, they're sort of protected in that way, but yes, it does raise questions about longer term impact on demand and sort of supporting this cycle because you can only do these things so long before then we do start to see this recession that you know has for the most part been sort of contained to manufacturing slip into the consumer. So with Deere, I know that in general Caterpillar is viewed more as a proxy on the economy than than Deere is, but is there anything that we can read in uh, to Deere's results to give us a broader sense of what's going on and the effects on corporate balance sheets? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think they're a great proxy for trade war pain because, of course, this has really hit the agricultural sector. Um, And so just looking at the general uncertainty that's pervading manufacturing, I think this is another example of that where people are just not willing to spin because they don't know what's going to happen, what's going to be out there. How do you justify spending Uh, thousands of dollars on a tractor? Yeah. um, So right now we are talking about deer shares up at 3.6%. Next week, just real quick, what industrial news are you looking for? I'm hoping it might be a little slow next week because it's it's the middle of August. We've sort of gotten through earnings, but I think, you know, with this Trump administration, nothing can ever be totally uneventful. And so I'm sure we'll get some trade headlines, which will have an impact on, on industrials. And of course, we're going to keep watching GE for more developments there, and especially to see if they have a more robust defense uh, point by point, because we haven't really seen that yet. And do you expect that? I think they would be wise to do that. I think they'd be smart to go in and get rid of all the earnings adjustments in their financial statements to, you know, stop being quite so opaque with the way that they present their numbers. Um, They've had some unfortunate errors just over the past couple of months where they've had to go back and correct what they said in presentations, correct marketing materials that, you know, had made their business sound better than it really was. And so that is not a good look. And, you know, I think they have a clear opportunity here to do more to improve transparency and credibility. 
Brooke Sutherland, thank you so much for being with us. Brooke Sutherland of Bloomberg Opinion. You can read all of her columns, OPI and go on the Bloomberg or Bloomberg.com slash opinion on the internet. Uh, I do want to just mention that General Electric's biggest plunge in 11 years came at sort of a bad time for a lot of hedge funds. There's a really interesting story talking about how uh, the likes of Renaissance Technologies, Citadel Advisors, and Adagi Capital Management all piled into General Electric shares right before the shares completely fell out of bed, so not the best time. Biotech is risky. China is risky. Biotech in China an opportunity? That is what our next guest uh, says, Brad Lonkar. He is Chief Executive Officer of Lonkar Investments, normally in Lenexa, uh, Kansas, but joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Brad, uh, so you invest, you've been an investor in biotechnology shares for a long time. So just can you give us a sense of why you are attracted to China in particular uh, within this sector? Yeah, so thanks for having me. This does sound like something that's new because it is. China is having a biotech boom right now. And part of what's behind it is, you know, think of the trade war and all of the headlines that are going on. China wants to shift its economy from being a manufacturing base in traditional industries like that to innovative sectors like tech and clean tech. And biotech is one of those. So your listeners might be familiar with the term made in China 2025. China has singled out pharmaceuticals as an industry that it wants to be a world leader in by that time. So the government is behind this. They've completely reformed their version of the FDA. It's called the National Medical Products Administration. The stock markets are actually allowing biotech companies to list for the first time, believe it or not, before last year. Like in Hong Kong, if you didn't have revenue, as most biotech companies don't, you couldn't even list on the stock exchange. Yeah. And so all of these things are incubating a biotech sector for the first time. How do you evaluate a company First of all, how do you evaluate a biotech company and its potential worth when a lot of them are binary, right? I mean, you could have a binary outcome, either something gets passed by the FDA and, and adapt, adopted by uh, the mainstream medical world or it doesn't. But in China, it feel like the bar is even higher to understand what's going on with the company. I mean, is that a big problem for you, just evaluating what they actually do and how good their products actually are? Yeah, so it's a little different there and here. So here you really have to analyze the science and try to figure out what's going to work or what's not. The phase that China's in with biotech right now is a lot of the companies there are licensing drugs here. So these drugs that are innovative and being approved here for the first time, but are already proven, have already succeeded in trials, they're licensing those drugs and then commercializing them there. So the stage that we're in right now is trying to determine the size of the market and the patient population for various medicines there, and then to use that to figure out the value of the companies. Now, Chinese companies are also doing what we call discovery work, and they will be inventing new medicines over the coming years. And so we're going to have to shift our focus and focus on that scientific risk there like we do in the US today, but that's kind of a next step. The first step is just getting innovative drugs into the country to begin with, and what are the economic ramifications of that? And for that, there's it's wide open. They're transitioning from a generics-based model to an innovative-based model, and so there's gonna be lots of room for many companies to succeed. I'm listening to you talk about adapting 
uh, or, uh, you know, bringing over some of the established medicines here. How does this fit into the trade war and the whole intellectual theft, IP theft uh, discussion? Yeah, well, the trade war, as you classically think of it, there are no tariffs on medicines, because if you think about it, that would raise drug prices, and neither side wants that. So this is one area that fundamentally is not affected by the trade war. Now, in terms of IP theft, that's part of the trade war negotiation. So a big class of drugs here, what really created the biotech sector, what's called biologics. And China and the US right now are negotiating how many years of exclusivity biologics will get in China. What are biologics, just to give us a sense of what kinds of drugs we're talking about? So like a traditional, a traditional medicine is made by chemicals, so like a pill. A biologic is like a Humira, you know, drugs that are made from living organisms. Got it. And so in the US, we have 12 years of protection for biologics. Right now, China would like to have nine years, but our industry views the negotiation as a hugely positive thing that's e that it's even taking place. So China understands that you can't have a biotech sector without IP protection. And so they're starting to write that in more forcefully than they have in the past. And so I think the arrows are pointed in the right direction as far as that goes. So, uh, you know, Moving aside from the science of it, and I understand sort of the technical backdrop, the fact that the biotech industry in China is gaining new steam because of the Made in 2025, Made in China 2025 uh, proclamation, and also just because there is a shift to a more developed economy. How do you invest in Chinese stocks? Do you do it with yuan? Do you do it with dollars? I mean, is that a big consideration for you? Yeah, well, I'm an index creator. I've created an index that tracks a basket of China biotech stocks, and most of them are listed in Hong Kong. Like the index that I've created, it's called the China Biopharma Index, tracks 29 companies, and 23 of those are listed in Hong Kong. But there's actually a handful of really good ones here listed on NASDAQ. There's one called Baijing, one called Xilab. Um, and so they're listing in both places. And you know, I personally do a lot of on-the-ground work. Over the last year, I've traveled there six times. And in biotech, that's really important. You have to meet management teams. You have to visit facilities and really see the science they're doing and their manufacturing facilities, you know, to make sure that you're investing in good companies. And that takes a lot of legwork. What about in the U.S.? Do you think that the opportunity in biotech in the U.S. has already basically played out at this point? Well, you know, the U.S. has been very rocky. The IBB, which is the biggest biotech ETF, actually peaked in 2015. And a lot of people don't realize that. You know, we the stock market makes new highs every day, not over the last couple of weeks, but um, the biotech sector is one exception to that. So we peaked in 2015, and the reason for that is everything you see in the news about payers pushing back on drug pricing and all of this stuff. And so it has impacted the industry's growth. And... I would say biotech investors in general are really nervous about the next year because we've got the presidential election and you have all of these candidates, you know, saying terrible things, some frankly well-deserved about our industry. And so we think biotech's going to be taking a lot of shots over the next year, which is actually one reason why I'm so focused in China. You know, in the U.S., we're thinking of ways of how we won't spend money on drugs. In China, they're starting from the very beginning. Their biotech sector is just like ours in the 80s and 90s, meaning it's just getting started. And 
what I tell people is there's an Amgen there, there's a Celgene there, there's a Genentech there, and they're just small companies that most people haven't heard of yet, but you will one day because it's going to look just like our biotech sector in the future. Thank you so much for being here. Brad Lonkar, Chief Executive Officer of Lonkar Investments, talking about China biotech. And uh, really interesting to see also the backdrop of this having to do with biotech in the U.S. and some of the pressures that it will inevitably come under as the 2020 election cycle heats up. We're already seeing a lot of rhetoric saying that, uh, frankly, we need to lower drug prices. And this has been an ongoing uh, discussion. We have had a tumultuous week here. Uh, markets getting whipsawed by competing tweets and comments about the trade war. The U.S. and China do appear to be talking. The U.S. may delay tariffs until December that it had originally planned to impose in September. The question is, how much does this really soften trade tensions, especially as China says that it plans to retaliate against the U.S. Uh, if it does impose those extra tariffs? So how does an investor deal with this? David Katz joining us now, Chief Investment Officer. Officer at Matrix Asset Advisors. Uh, David, I'm just wondering, after this week, is there anything that happened that makes you want to change how you allocate your money? Well, we think that the large sell-off has actually created an opportunity. We are fearful of the trade war. Uh, It definitely is slowing the economy. If there isn't a detente or cessation of hostilities. Uh, We think that it could cause the global economy to slow down, possibly a recession, and the same with the U.S. However, if there is any sort of easing of the tensions, uh, we think the economy is in good shape and stocks, which sold off probably about 6 to 10 percent from their highs in the last two to four weeks, are really at very good prices. So key to investor, take a longer term time horizon uh, and pick companies that you like. And, and we definitely would be buying into this weakness, not on a day like today where the market's rallying, but on a day like Wednesday when it looks like the world's coming to an end. So where exactly do you see opportunities? Well, the group that's been hit the worst in the last week or two has been financials, or one of the worst has been financials. And we think that even though it's going to be a little bit tougher to be as profitable in a lower interest rate environment, they're still making a boatload of money. They're buying stock back. They're actually among the best yielding stocks in the market today. So you have a good two to three year time horizon or two to three year uh, earnings growth window, and you're getting them at 10, 11 times earnings, paying a 3.5% yield. So we would be pretty aggressively buying financials, uh, whether it's a BBT, a Wells Fargo, a JP Morgan, a PNC. We really like that group a lot. We like the um, brokers like a Goldman Sachs or a Morgan Stanley. Uh, again, we think that's very good opportunity if you're willing to turn down the day-to-day uh, noise. So, David, I guess that then what would you say, how much is this predicated on the idea that the Federal Reserve is going to cut rates uh, at least two more times this year? So the Fed's going to cut rates for sure, whether it's it's one, two, or three times. Uh, we think that will help the financial markets and provide liquidity, but we don't think it really will have that uh, positive impact on the economy. We're speaking with hundreds of companies, and what all of the companies are saying pretty much across the board is that their business is slowing because of China, because of trade tensions, and because of tariffs. Not one company that we're speaking to has said, hey, business is slowing because we're worried about the credit markets or we're not able to lend or interest rates are too high. So the Fed lowering rates uh, we think is a foregone conclusion and will be a net positive. 
But the real key to the economy and then the real key to the stock market is, uh, do we get better progress on the trade? And the reason that we're hopeful that we will is it's finally starting to set into everybody and, and ultimately to the president that tariffs are bad, trade war is bad, more and more strategists are talking about it, more and more newspapers are talking about it. And that's going to put pressure on the president and Peter Navarro to come up with a resolution rather than keep talking about tariffs being such a great thing. Because people are now losing real money. The economy is going to slow. And, and President Trump does not want to go into next year in a recession as he tries to run for reelection. David, let's say that there it becomes clear that there is not going to be a trade deal between the U.S. and China. Would you be forced to sell some of your stocks that you've been buying? Well, we wouldn't be forced to sell them, but it definitely would extend our time horizon. We think you're going to have a pretty quick rebound if you uh, get some sort of a deal. But if you don't, you're going to go into a uh, slowdown or a recession. But again, we think it's self-correcting because the more the market goes down, the more pressure there is on the United States and on China into settling something. So this isn't the type of problem that you had in uh, 2000, where you had huge excess inventories and spending in the internet bubble, or uh, in 2008, when you had a huge real estate bubble and banks had bad balance sheets. The overall economy is generally intact. You don't have excess inventory. Consumer balance sheets are in great shape. Bank balance sheets are in great shape. So you have a lot of really good things out there. This is a self-inflicted wound that can be corrected easily. So we think the longer it goes on, the greater the likelihood it gets fixed, simply because you, you can't continue uh, in the form that it is. David Katz, thank you so much for joining us today. David Katz, Chief Investment Officer at Matrix Asset Advisors, uh, joining us from New York on the phone. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.